This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. The high school and college years are an extended roller coaster of academics, friends, first loves, first breakups, driver's ed, jobs, and everything in between. Kids are constantly changing, and how we parent them must change too. But how do we stay close as a family as our lives move apart? Well, to help us address those questions is one of the founders of the largest website and online community for parents of 15 to 25-year-olds. And in a brand new book, she and her co-author and co-founder have put together a wonderful list, not a list, it's a big collection of takeaways and explanations and insights into everything that they've learned over the years. So we're going to be talking about parenting teens leading up to and through the transition from high school and on to college and those first years on their own. We're going to be talking about pretty much everything you can imagine that would affect you. We'll talk about certainly family life, what's going on in the family. you got a lot to talk about with brain development and adolescent development and how things are different than they were when we were kids that age. A little bit about health and diet and nutrition. Drugs and alcohol certainly is going to come up. And also getting into college and moving on and, and how we begin to separate from our kids and how they begin to separate from us. Today's show is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces veterans and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or Department of Defense, they would be proud to serve you, too. Federally insured by NCUA. And it all starts right after this. Did you know one in three adults is at risk for kidney disease? If you have high blood pressure or diabetes, you could be the one. I was looking in the newspaper and saw an article that said if you have symptoms for kidney disease, you should see your doctor. And I really didn't expect anything because I felt healthy. I didn't worry about my borderline high blood pressure. Turns out it was silently inflicting kidney disease. When you know, it's almost too late. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and my guest for this part of today's show is Mary Dell Harrington, who's the co-author with Lisa Heffernan of Grown and Flown, How to Support Your Teens, Stay Close as a Family, and Raise Independent Adults. Mary Dell, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Armin. I appreciate the invitation. Well, let's talk about teens and how you're defining teen, because I think that's one of those things I think you know, people used to think that the young adult had a particular meaning as far as age, but adolescence seems to be stretching into the mid-20s these days. So are you talking about teens as only double digits, or are, are the teen years starting sooner and lasting longer? Well, we don't have hard and fast uh, uh, you know, rules for, for our community or uh, audience for this book. In general, Lisa and I have carved out the decade of age between 15 and 25 as okay. being the teens to emerging adolescent decade. Um, that's when parents are changing their roles, as, as, as you know, from being one where you're sort of managing their lives pretty exclusively to being more of a coach and a mentor. And there's that very deliberate pivot. 
and pivot points as you go through that decade with your kids. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I noticed that that there was a big change from daddy who knows everything about everything to daddy who will give his opinions when they are asked for, which is, you know, that's quite a change if you're, if it you're is. not prepared for it. I mean, I think you really have to, a lot of parents, I mean, dads and moms, I think make the, don't, don't make that transition well. And it's, I think it can aggravate uh, relationship problems or cause them. Um, you know, I think it just goes with the territory as as kids who enter into those teen years really have to push against their parents. They have to differentiate to become their own individuals. And it, nothing about that feels very good. <laughs> you know, you, you really don't want to be rejected by the child who used to hold your hand and snuggle with you on the couch, and all of a sudden they look at you like you're an alien in their lives. But it's just part of the deal, and I think if parents are – somewhat prepared if they do a little bit of um, digging on what's going on in adolescent behavior and adolescent teen development, that can actually really help a lot because then you, you, have, a, you have a physiological sort of context to put your child's behavior into. So I found are... that helpful to me. In fact, I, I, as part of the research for the book, we um, had opportunities to talk to a couple of different doctors who were working in um, – in brain science and brain theory, you know, brain research. And had I only had those conversations when my eldest was hitting those tough years, I think it would have made me a better mom. And I kind of wonder about that one because that particular bit of information about brain development and that the brains are, are developing later in life than we think they are, I think that that sometimes causes parents to perhaps not take their kids so seriously and maybe say, well, you can't really make your own decisions because your brain isn't fully developed. What do you think about that I, That particular? I, I've, I've heard that before they, from, from I, people who I say... I really yeah. thought about it in that context as much. My sense was just, um, or my recommendation, what, what we've learned in talking to uh, Dr. Francis Jensen in particular, um, who's the author of The Teenage Brain, a book that came out a few years ago, and head of the neurology department at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, you know, she herself is the mother of now two young adult, um, probably well into their 20s, boys. And she said that she thinks it's very helpful if parents understand what's going on in brain development and then sit down with their kids and also say, this is the science behind what's going on with your, with your brain and your body. Um, not to let you off the hook, but just so <laughs> that you're aware, you might need to take a second longer when you have this urge to do something that's risky, just give yourself a moment to think through the consequences because your brain isn't, isn't necessarily going to be approaching that question the same way it might when you're 25 or 30. Um, she, she writes her book from an instructional standpoint um, to help parents, I think, um, get a grasp on what's going on with their kids. <laughs> so she says there's not a parent in the world who won't at some point say to their kid, like, what were you thinking, <laughs> you know? Because um, you'll just be shocked at, at some, you know, blunder that they made. Hopefully nothing that's irreversible, but um, every all kids make mistakes. And uh, anyway, I, I highly recommend that book and, and oh, do yeah. think that that's a, yeah. that can be a benefit to parents to know those things. Well, I mean, the fact that you and I are having this conversation and that other people are listening is a testament to the fact that the, the mistakes that we make are generally not irreversible, that we somehow, <laughs> somehow manage to, to make our way through. Uh, despite all the mistakes that we make. And, and I mean, in, in some ways, I, I, I come back to that often when I'm thinking about these things and think, you know, how much 
benefit is there in trying to tell kids about how to do things or, or worrying about stuff because our parents didn't do that and we somehow made it and a lot of life's knowledge has to come from making mistakes and learning from your mistakes and if you tell people too much maybe they won't make the mistakes that they need to make in order to become the people that, that they need to become. Um, I think that there is great learning that happens when you make a mistake, and certainly parents uh, need to let their kids uh, make some of those mistakes. Some are probably have greater consequences than others, but certainly um, encouraging your, your teen to go out and do things and take risks, um, you know, not, not risky or <laughs> not risk with a capital R, but put themselves in, um, you know, new situations where they haven't ever been before, maybe getting a summer job where they've never had one or um, trying out for a particular part in a play where they've never been in theater before, or going out for a team. All those sorts of things are really risks to kids because they're putting themselves in a position where they maybe don't have great confidence or they've not experienced those things before. Um, that Those sorts of things are terrific opportunities for kids to learn. And if there's a if they make a mistake, if things didn't work out so well for them, there definitely are lessons that are takeaways for them as well. Yeah, as long as that can be one of the lessons for us is to, to let them sit with that for a little bit and figure out what went wrong and right. maybe what not right. to do again or what to do if that situation comes up again. Right. Absolutely. And we can't rescue them. You know, we can't. We, we all see our kids probably doing homework later in the night uh, after we want to go to bed. Um, it's not really our job to go in and rescue them at that moment and say, look, let me, uh, let me you know, help edit this paper for you or let me um, see if I can, you know, find some research for you so I can help you get to bed sooner. I mean, that's not the time to rescue a kid out of a bad situation. Um, but certainly the next day or the next weekend, it's a great opportunity to say, so what went wrong here? You know, let's, can I help you think of some strategies that maybe will prevent this train wreck, academic train wreck, from happening again quite that same way? One of the chapters you've got is about health and talking to kids about health. And it seems health is such a huge thing, and it's something that I think that a lot of kids just don't, concern themselves with because almost by definition people in the age group that you're talking about that 15 to 25 pretty much think they're indestructible and nothing can go wrong with them especially boys so how do you get across messages about the importance of getting exercise perhaps the importance of watching the diet um, how, how do you even have these conversations with somebody who just may not be interested um, that's that's a tough one um, because it's it's very hard to motivate a um, couch potato that they need to go out and do things. I, certainly, parents can model the behavior that they think their teens should um, emulate. They can also we can also come up with activities to do together. I mean, that sounds kind of like a like a. <laughs> Not something that many teens would leap at the opportunity to do some activities with their parents, but if there are things that, as a family, um, that are more active, that are taking a hike or going on a long walk together or biking or doing things where on vacations it's, it's more active and less sedentary, then maybe you can jumpstart your teen who might not be that interested in moving in, into moving um, Certainly eating is a, is a thing that 
parents have a lot of control over in terms of what food is in the house and what food is prepared. Um, getting your getting your teen somewhat involved in maybe food preparation or helping them, um, you know, become uh, more competent in the kitchen might be also a good motivator and a good technique to um, introduce the concept of food and what foods mm -hmm. really are nutritious and which ones are really just sort of junk food. Not that they don't know that already, but there may be some things that actually taste better to them that they never would have thought <laughs> would have been as healthy as they are. Talking with Mary Dell Harrington, who's the author, the co-author with uh, Lisa Heffernan of Grown and Flown, How to Support Your Teens, Stay Close as a Family, and Raise Independent Adults. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Mary Dell about getting your kids flown. I'm Armin Brott. You're talking to Positive. You're listening to Positive Parenting. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Books them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Mary Dell Harrington, the co-author of Grown and Flown, How to Support Your Teens, Stay Close as a Family, and Raise Independent Adults. I want to keep staying with health, but also, I guess, have the, the overlap between health and a few other things uh, with about drugs and alcohol. And I know we could do an entire show on that, but it just seems that there's so much that's changing out there the vaping for example there's all this stuff in the news these days about people people are now dying from vaping and now, the, the, the research yeah i mean the, and i also had a, a a close friend has a a nephew who was vaping something but it had been contaminated with fentanyl i don't know if it was had been contaminated deliberately or inadvertently but he ended up in the emergency room i mean you know, there, there's stuff that's going on that we, as parents, I mean, literally have no idea what it's about because that stuff just didn't exist. And how, how do we even talk to them about things that, that were not even on our radar? It's, it's, it is, that in particular, I think, is one of the scarier things that has emerged recently. Um, one thing, Armin, that we have that um, really was uh, a major influencer in our in our book is we have a Facebook community called Grown and Flown Parents, and I invite your listeners to check it out and join it if they're on Facebook and looking for community. But we have 125,000 members in a Facebook group that we started about three and a half years ago. And um, I want to say two years ago, someone sent a photo of what were cartridges and said, I found these in my teen's room, and I don't really know what they are. They sort of look like flash drives. Can you ask the question anonymously in the group? And that was one of the first times that I think the conversation really arose um, among parents as to what this thing is and what to look for. And we began to do some research um, to write uh, about vaping for parents so that they would have some background information on it. Um, certainly every major media company has covered vaping before and after in, in yeah. great detail. but. That, you know, many of the indications of teen behavior are becoming more positive. 
um, if you look at some of the statistics, you know, um, uh, drug and alcohol abuse had, had, you know, been in decline. Teen pregnancy had been in decline. But vaping is one that went in the opposite, has gone in the opposite direction. So that is a really scary thing, and these fatalities are frightening. Yeah. Well, and there's going to be more, I think. I mean, this, this particular thing was called the dab pen, which I don't know if you've heard it, but I had never heard it until a couple of weeks ago. And it's apparently some super concentrated THC thing that's just gets you really, really high. And then if you throw other stuff in there, fentanyl or cocaine or whatever, it can it can kill you. Yeah, or come close. It's uh, it's not good. Yeah. So I mean, where do we get the the, information to tell kids though that this is stuff you got to look out for? And because they they can say, well, you don't even understand what it is. What are you talking about? And they're right. Right, I know it. It is. It's, this is not one where many parents probably have a whole lot of experience, unlike alcohol or um, smoking or you know marijuana, where we might be able to speak from personal experience. Um, this is one that's just kind of come up so quickly and so ferociously that it, this is a tough one. I think that um, we are should take. Uh, obviously take time to talk about this stuff with our kids and talk about the real risk. And every time there's a, there's a tragic news story, use that as an opportunity to mm-hmm. talk about the reality of the risk, yeah. that it's not just something that we are making up, that these things are actually happening, and there's a lot of uncertainty out there. In a lot of ways, they can trip themselves up and um, just keep talking to them. There's, there's really no magic bullet on this. Um, It's just a question of keeping a conversation going. Yeah. You know, get into something that's a little bit less charged, perhaps. Um, (laughs) The idea really going on back to the title of the book, Grown and Flown. I've got a a daughter who just started her junior year in high school. And I know that there are plenty of people who are listening who've got freshmen and sophomore and even seniors. And in in a way, that's what parenting is all about, is getting our kids ready to be able to launch and be successful adults. But it's also frightening to be letting them go into a world that we don't understand. And how do you begin to set the stage for giving them the skills that they need, the opportunity to make mistakes, and also a little bit of a push um, it, it is something that I think a lot of parents feel, if a lot if not most parents, feel that they're on shaky ground when they get to this teen years. I think to some degree we feel very isolated. When our kids were younger, we had, um, you know, we would maybe go and drop them stay at birthday parties and we'd chat with other, other parents. We would have parent-teacher conferences. We'd go in the pediatrician's office with them when they were little kids. And so we had this whole support network of professionals and friends, and we felt really in sync with our community. And then by the time your your kid, your teen, hits high school years, a lot of that scaffolding falls away. You're not going to parent-teacher conferences the same way you used to. You're definitely not going in the pediatrician's office with your teenager because, you know, they want and need that privacy themselves. And a lot of times, uh, you know, your, your kids' friends' parents are maybe people you've never met. Um, and the people that you used to know, maybe, you know, your kids aren't that close to anymore. So you're really feeling very isolated. So that, that makes parenting at this age group even harder 
than just what you have to do, the skills you have to, you have the, the, the you know, your, all your heart and, and instinct and smarts that you have to draw from to be the best parent that you can be. But you, it is a little bit like flying a kite where I think you let the string out and you test the wind and you let it out a little bit more. Because I think as you see that your, your teen is going to be leaving the house after they graduate from high school, whether they go on to college or the military or a community college or work or a gap year, whatever they choose, they're definitely going to be um, 18. And, you know, they can do many more things on their, on their own as they hit the age of 18. And they should have that independence. But our job is to prepare them for that and make sure that they have some adulting skills in the bank so that they're not, they don't leave home and um, have no ability to manage on their own. Well, so what's your strategy then during the, the years that lead up to heading off to college to give them those adulting skills, to let them practice a little bit while the stakes are lower? Well, I think that... Um, Certainly having opportunities to do things other than go to school um, and come home are really important. If they have a summer job or a job during the school year, if they learn how to cook some, if they certainly you know, can go to a grocery store and navigate and, and plan meals and um, buy the food and actually learn how to cook some of those things, but the, certainly they want to we want to make sure they know how to do laundry and you know just sort of basic skills we know we we want to make sure that they understand about money about credit cards versus debit cards there's a whole bunch of different things that are we take for granted i think as parents because it's just a second nature to us and we need to um you know be very deliberate i think almost come up with a checklist of things that between now and when your child graduates from high school they have um they've mastered, or at least you've, you've spent some time talking to them about it. Does such a checklist exist someplace? Because I think if we sat down to try to figure out all the things, it would either be an incredibly short list or an incredibly long one. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, Julie Lithcott-Hames has, has written a wonderful book called How to Raise an Adult. Yeah, and she, she was has, a guest on the um, show. She has yeah. eight points in her book that I think are, are really classic. I can, uh, we'll make sure they're in your show notes. Um, so that you can let your readers know about those. But that's, I think that's, those are really good starting points. Okay. And what is the address or the, the URL for the Facebook group? Um, Grown and Flown Parents is the, uh, is the name of the, of the group. And okay. I can also make sure that your readers have that URL so they, find, they can find it easily. It's a closed group, which means that they – will um, ask to join, and then um, we vet everybody to make sure that they're a parent of a high school or a college student. So it takes a little bit of time to, um, to be vetted, but if they say that they have listened to me on your, on your show on positive parenting and they put that in there, when we ask them three questions, we'll, we'll make sure and we expedite their application. Okay. So, again, the, uh, I've been speaking with Mary Dell Harrington, who's the co-author with Lisa Heffernan of Grown and Flown, How to Support Your Teens, Stay Close as a Family, and Raise Independent Adults. And, again, uh, you can find out some information at the Grown and Flown Parents Group, and we'll have all that information on the website. Mary Dell, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you again for having me. I've enjoyed um, speaking with you, and good luck with your junior in high school and <laughs> to your, the beginning of the school year. For everybody who's, who's out there with kids, um, 
trying to be as good a parent as I can be. Thanks a lot. Okay. Talk to you later. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Braun, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. Our world is filled with a nearly endless number of creatures in a dazzling variety of colors, shapes, and sizes. It's no wonder, then, that humans are mesmerized by animals. This week, we bring you a number of games that feature animals. Some you'll be familiar with, others you'll learn about for the first time. Aquadiver from Play Monsters. Summer may be technically over, almost, but it's still plenty hot in many places, and that means more time by and in the pool. For kids and competitive adults who love to hunt and chase after submerged objects, this fun, squid-shaped toy adds a delightful element of competition. Toss Aqua Diver into the pool, and the timer starts the second it hits the water. Then dive in and try to catch it. Hit the button to stop the timer, and it's the next diver's turn to beat your time. Batteries are included. Ages 5 and up, about $14.95. Find out more at playmonster.com. Jungle Bingo from Lawrence King. Who needs numbers when you can play bingo with Amazon River Dolphins, fearsome leopards, pygmy kingfishers, three-banded armadillos, poisonous moth caterpillars, and many more fascinating and beautiful jungle creatures? comes with a game board, eight double-sided cards, 48 jungle tokens, and plenty of counters to mark your board. Need more animals? You can check out Monkey Bingo, Cat Bingo, and Ocean Bingo. They're all for ages 3 and up, cost under 20 bucks. Find out more at lawrenceking.com. Dogs and Puppies from Lawrence King. This beautifully illustrated memory matching game features dogs and puppies from 25 breeds. You'll meet plenty of familiar dogs like Huskies, Dachshunds, and Dalmatians, but there will also be plenty you've never heard of, let alone seen. Collect the most pairs to win. Don't like dogs? No problem. There are cats and kittens. Allergic to cats? Well, try Match a Leaf. They're for ages 5 and up, cost under 15 bucks. Dino Domino from Lawrence King. This set includes 28 colorful, not very ferocious Dino Dominoes. Play like you ordinarily would by matching the end pieces. Be the first to play your last dom, and you become the ruler of the prehistoric world. For two to four players, ages seven and up, under 14 bucks. Spot the Bot from Lawrence King. There are four six-sided dice, one each with robot antennae, heads, bodies, and legs. Roll the dice and try to find the robot you rolled on the game board. First to make the connection gets a token. Most tokens wins. It's for two or more players ages six and up. Costs about $21. You can get more at lawrenceking.com. Puzzle to Go, Animals of the World from Mud Puppy. This 36-piece puzzle features charmingly illustrated exotic animals from around the world, including a penguin, tiger, toucan, koala, flamingo, quail, and many more. Fully assembled, the puzzle is 12 inches by 9 inches and fits perfectly on an airplane tray table. When playtime is over, drop the pieces into the drawstring bag and you're done. Manufactured with an eye towards sustainability, the fabric bag is 100% cotton. Packaging and puzzled materials contain mostly recycled paper and are printed with non-toxic inks. It's for ages 3 and up, 
Find out more at mudpuppy.com. Road Trip Bingo from Mud Puppy. Okay, this game may not seem like it fits our animal category, but the manufacturer's name is Mud Puppy, and the illustration on the box is of dogs driving a car. Plus, there are a few animals, a dog, a cow, and a bird, on the bingo cards. The rest of the objects on the card include police cars, toll booths, stop signs, airplanes, tow trucks, churches, cement mixers, taxis, construction cones, motorcycles, and a lot of other things you're likely to see on a road trip. Be the first to spot an item, shot it out, then mark it on your board using the included dry eraser pens. If you aren't the first to shout it out, you don't get to mark the item. First to get five in a row wins the round. It's for ages five and up, costs $12.99, and you can get more info at mudpuppy.com. You can find reviews of a lot more puzzles, toys, and games, and all sorts of things with or without animals that are aimed at you and your family at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. But don't go yet because, as you know, there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this from the MrDad.com radio network. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. This is actually the second part of our show. We've got a lot more great stuff coming up for you. On a crisp spring morning, Kim Brooks made a split-second decision to leave her four-year-old son in the car while she ran into a suburban Target store. She was gone for only a few minutes, and when she came back, he was still happily absorbed in a game. What Brooks didn't know was that a stranger had filmed her and would go on to send the video to the police. The fallout from this single moment would spur Brooks to investigate America's culture of fear and how it has infected parenthood. She dives into the American psyche of competition and anxiety as she recounts the two most harrowing years of her life. She fights to hold on to her identity as a good parent and to interrogate what this even means in the first place. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with Kim Brooks about fear, where it comes from, why we have so much of it, and most importantly, what it is that we can do 
to overcome some of it, and while maintaining a sense of what's reasonable and wanting to report things if a child is truly in danger. But there's something in between completely ignoring things and going overboard. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about parenting in the age of fear when positive parenting continues right after this. Bullying is not kids being kids. It's not about good homes or bad homes. It's not an only part of growing up. I shouldn't be afraid to get on the school bus. To turn on my computer. Message. Or walk to my locker. Did you know that a bully will stop his or her behavior in 10 seconds when their peers speak up? Use your voice. Hey, leave him alone. We have the power to stop bullying. Find out more at bullying.org. Where you're not alone. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Kim Brooks, who is the author of Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. Kim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the story about you leaving your child in the car uh, that got you started on this whole thing about looking at, at fear and how that's taken over parenthood in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, this was about seven years ago at this point, and um, I had run into a store to get one item on a, a cool day in a suburban area, um, and I let my son wait in the car for about five minutes while I ran in to get this item. Um, everything was fine. He was fine. Um, but later I would find out that somebody had recorded me doing this and had called the police. Um, and the police then ultimately um, charged me. It was a misdemeanor, and there was a sort of ordeal that, that, that took quite a while to play out. Um, the way in which it, it sort of, the, the, the largest impact it had ultimately on my life was that it made me sort of start questioning how starkly um, our culture around parenthood and safety and parenthood and fear has changed in the course of just a generation or two. Um, you know, I, I started, couldn't help but wondering why something that I remember doing all the time as a child waiting in a car for a couple minutes was now seen, you know, not just as unsafe, but also, you know, criminally negligent. And I started looking at other aspects of parenthood and childhood freedom, children walking to school, having unsupervised time, um, being in public spaces, um, in groups together, things like that, and just kind of looking at these changes with a kind of a, uh, through the lens of a cultural criticism. And what did you come up with? <clears throat> I mean, did you, did you figure out what exactly went wrong somewhere along the line? Because <laughs> I, I wonder a lot of these things to myself, and there, there are other people who talk about this stuff. I mean, there's uh, Lenore Skenazi who talks about free-range parenting, and uh, she and I talked about it. I mean, I, I remember just being able to take the bus all over Oakland, California when I was a kid, when I was seven and eight years old, and thinking if I put my kid on the city bus at age seven, uh, the kid would come back in a police car and I'd be taken away. Um, I mean, you know, and, and as you said, you know, riding your bike to school, can you do that anymore? And it, it's, uh, 
And I'm not convinced that the world is actually statistically, measurably a, a more dangerous place than it was. Yeah, I mean, in fact, it's actually statistically safer in those ways for kids. And uh, Lenore Skenazy, who I admire greatly, is a friend of mine, talks and writes about this all the time, um, has a lot of statistics on her website. But I was just reading one, um, you know, in, in terms of things like violent crime, murder, um, basically all violent crime, muggings, um, it, it's, it's safer now. It's as safe as it was. You'd have to go back in time to 1963 to get to a point where crime levels were this low. Um, and so, right, I know the knee-jerk sort of response that people have, like, oh, well, the world we're living in now isn't what it used to be. It's always sort of strange because the fact is it's not. It's actually a safer time, you know, to be a child. Um, but it doesn't feel safer to us um, and to parents and to bystanders. And I think that that's sort of just because the culture has changed. And, you know, these, these kinds of behaviors, like what, what we think is safe, what feels safe, um, are largely socially determined. Um, well, it's also, you know, we, I think, we, when, yeah, when you were a kid, when I was a kid, people didn't have cameras in their pockets. And so somebody might have walked by a car and tisk tisked and said, oh, parents shouldn't leave their kids in cars. And then that was the end of it. But now you take a picture and you can send it to the police with one click. And uh, I don't know. It's so but you're I'm, I'm not calling you on a on a prison phone. So you obviously got <laughs> got off of this thing. What what happened? Well, it's it's a kind of a very long story. You know, I, I go into it in a lot of detail in the book. I mean, ultimately, you know, I I the charges were dropped, and you know, I didn't nothing horrible happened. I didn't lose my children. I mean, it was it was an ordeal. But the most significant thing that happened in the long term for me was that. When I began writing about it and talking about it, um, other people, a lot of mothers, started coming forward and reaching out to me and saying something similar had happened to them, that they had been um, arrested or, or attacked or shamed in some way for doing what they felt was a completely rational, uh, reasonable parenting decision. Um, and I realized that it, this wasn't just something that had happened to me, that this was something that was happening to us as a culture. Um, you know, sort of rights and power being taken away by, by taken away from parents, from mothers, from dads, and sort of given over to, um, you know, I don't even know who exactly, because well, it's, it's, not, it's not rule, as simple as, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's not as simple as saying it's just about the government or the police because it's not, you know, the government who's calling the, the police on people. It's sort of, it's just sort of other people. It's sort of this social shift. Mm -hmm. You know, th this is related in somewhat, but it just what popped into my mind the other day. It was, it was a very hot day here in, in, in California, and I was out getting groceries with my daughter, who's 16, and there's a Tesla parked next to us as we go into this grocery store, and the windows are rolled all the way up, and there's a dog inside, and it's really hot. Mm -hmm. And I, I was looking at that thinking, huh. And then I saw on the screen on, on the Tesla, you could see in, in big letters, it said something like, we're in dog mode, and the air conditioning is on, and <laughs> you're thinking, 
that mm-hmm. I mean it's not an advertisement for Tesla. But I thought that was a very smart thing to do, but mm-hmm. I think wonder whether you would actually would you put your leave your kid in a car with the windows rolled up in child mode if they had the air conditioning on. Um, but it's you know we we've technology has kind of gotten into this gotten us into this and I wonder if it can help us get out in some way. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there's definitely a safety issue with cars, you know, and I don't like to gloss over that because there are a certain number of children who are forgotten in, in hot cars yes. and the parents don't, re- don't realize the child in the car. These are usually not bad parents or criminals. These are people who, who just have a momentary brain lapse and they forget that the baby's in the car, and these are awful tragedies. And cars can heat up uh, very quickly, you know, on a warm day. So, but to me, that's a, it's really a completely separate issue um, from what from what I'm talking about, which mm-hmm. is I didn't forget that my child is in the car. Thank God. Right. I didn't leave. I didn't leave my child in a hot car. I left my kid in a cool, well ventilated car in front of a store for five minutes until I got one item. And you know, the problem is that. I think it's not it's not just about cars. It's about the fact that when we now when when many people see a child who does not have direct adult supervision, no matter what the context is, we immediately assume that that's an emergency, that that child is in some kind of terrible danger, and that to me is what has really changed. Um, and so and it goes beyond cars because. You know, a, a woman in a suburb of Chicago who I've gotten to know had a neighbor called the police because she was letting her nine-year-old walk the family dog around their condominium complex in a like very safe suburb. I mean, I, there have been parents who have um, gotten in trouble for letting their children play in the park you know, two blocks away. And so it's not just about cars. Obviously, if you see a baby in a in a hot parking lot of a business, you know, of a place where it doesn't look like there's a parent might be coming back, you know, that that's a different issue. But to me, the sort of larger issue is this issue of are, are children really in terrible danger in any situation that they're not being watched or supervised? And if so, why is that the case now when it never has been before? talking with Kim Brooks, who's the author of Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to keep talking to Kim and find out exactly what's driving this, this culture of fear that we're in and uh, starting the conversation that we're having now, but continuing it, what, what, what can we do? Is there something we can do? How do we change this? Because it just doesn't seem to be in a healthy place and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. I I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more on our website, yougottobekidding.org. Visit yougottobekidding.org today.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Kim Brooks, who's the author of Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. So let's let's talk about how to talk about this in a way that we can do something. Because I, I, I agree with you that I think that there's, you know, I, I'm glad to hear you say that you're you're not discounting in any way the, the potential dangers of leaving the child in the car, but there has to be some sense of reasonableness and how do we how do we do that? I mean, people are going to draw lines in different places, uh, right? So there there's going to be somebody who's going to see something that's a perfectly normal, healthy, safe situation, and find it outrageous. And there are people who will look at a potentially dangerous situation and see see that it's perfectly fine. Is there a way of stepping back? I mean, well, what I, because this is a question that comes up a lot when I do uh, readings and events, is people will say, like, well, what if I see something and I'm, and I'm not sure, right? I'm not sure if the child, if the kid is in danger or needs help, and I don't want to destroy a family or get someone in trouble. At the same time, I don't want to just walk away and mind my own business and then, you know, think that maybe something bad happened to that child. And, and I mean, that's completely an understandable dilemma. And so what I always say is just that we need to sort of slow down in these kinds of situations and not, uh, not react as if everything is an emergency, right, unless it is an emergency. And, and to sort of use our critical faculties to say, you know, is, does this child, and this is whether it's in a parking lot or a park or, or you know, a kid walking along the sidewalk, does this child seem like they're in distress? You know, are they, are, is this child in some imminent danger? You know, are they about to run into a street? You know, um, and obviously if there's imminent danger, if there's some imminent threat, then you intervene as though that's an emergency. But if there's not, you know, if, the child seems content, seems fine. Um, there's not some obvious danger. I think we need to start asking ourselves as a culture, like, why do we assume that that's an emergency? Um, you know, for and and I like you were talking about growing up riding the bus by yourself, and I hear stories like this all the time. I mean, I grew up walking to school uh, in the '80s. You know, mile and a half. Um, my my dad remembers. My dad remembers his mother sending him out to buy him cigarettes when he was, you know, eight or nine. I'm not advocating that. But, you know, for, for many generations, children, children, you know, did things on their own. They went places on their own. They played with each other on their own, meaning without, you know, adults interfering in any way. And it wasn't seen as unusual and it wasn't seen as you know, any more dangerous than just sort of being alive. So, you know, we need to ask ourselves, why Why are we making that assumption um, that that children are so sort of fragile and incompetent that the second we take our eyes off of them, you know, they're going to burst into flames? And have you come up with something? Because I think that that's such a reasonable question, and there's so much gray area in there that it's hard, I think, to come up with a, a template or a rubric that makes sense where you can say, okay, so this is one thing and that's something else. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard question, and I, I like, like many of these questions about 
social change. I don't think there's like one, there's one single answer. I think there's a number of factors that have kind of uh, influenced it. But I mean, a couple things that I that I think a lot about are, you know, one is that we we've sort of I think we've shifted to, to become um, in, in terms of who we see as being responsible for children. In a lot of ways, we're sort of a low birth rate society, right? So co- compa- contrasting that to like the post-war years, the 50s and 60s, when there were so many children at high birth rate, and you saw children everywhere. And I think there was more of a sense of community responsibility for children. So, you know, people who are who are older than me, my parents' age, who talk about doing things like taking buses, you know, to visit grandparents on their own, one thing they'll say a lot is things like, you know, my parents would say if I if I got in trouble or needed help, just ask an adult. Ask another adult. Mm, yeah. Whereas now we tell kids never talk to a stranger. You know, so there's this I think a, a larger shift towards suspiciousness, a lack of trust, you know, this idea that um, the only a child's parents are the only people who are in any way can help that child or be responsible in any way, which is not the way it's been for most of humanity. You know, um, I, I was talking to just a, a woman I ran into um, at, at my hair salon, actually, the other day, who was talking about, you know, how she wouldn't leave her her 12-year-old at a birthday party, even when they said it was a drop-off party, because mm-hmm. she felt like, you know, she'd be shirking her responsibility as the, as the child's mother. And I just thought, I mean, I didn't say anything because I was just getting my hair done. But I just thought to myself, like, what, what kind of a society are we if, you know, you can't even just trust, you know, that you can drop your kid at a friend's birthday party for two yeah. hours and, you know, and it's fine because you would do the same for other parents. I mean, it's just... It's, be, it's shifted to this idea of, like, our children are our private property or something. And so I think that that's a, a big part of it. Well, how do we change this, though? I mean, I, 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 that's the most frustrating part. I think it's a, it's a fascinating, interesting discussion to have about how life has changed and, and how frustrating it is to, to be caught in a situation like you were caught in where you're doing something that your parents did and was was not unreasonable and was not negligent. It was deliberate. But, I mean, is there something that you think can really be done? Is there education that can be done? Is there, I mean, do, do we need to have, I don't know, a, a government public service announcement saying that, I, I don't know, because it seems like they're it, it just leaving it up to people to say, well, get, let's get back to the way that it was in the, in, in the 60s and 70s. I don't know. Right. And, and I, I, will, I, I do think there are things that we can do. And I also do just want to say I agree that, you know, we don't want to just romanticize the past, right, because we want to go forward. There were things that were much worse for, ch- for children, for some children then. I think that the things that we can do are, first of all, I think states need to, more states need to adopt, I guess, what are called free-range child laws. And Utah is an example of that's done this. Um, also, Ithaca, New York, has declared itself a free-range community. And what, what this sort of means is that 
in that place, parents, it's a law protecting parents who want to give their children a reasonable reasonable amount of independence and saying they can't be, people can still judge them. You know, you can't make a law against that. And people can <laughs> express concern, but you can't criminally charge a parent for, for making kind of a reasonable choice when their child is not in danger. Um, so I think that's important. But the second and I think equally important piece is shifting the culture so that it, it stops seeming so unusual to see children on their own. And and that, I think, has to be more of a communal effort. So Lenore Skenazy has now founded something called uh, the Let Grow movement. Um, and, you know, they ha- you can look at them at letgrow.org. And they work with parents, with, with neighborhoods, and with schools to sort of different projects that reintegrate free play and independent time into children's lives. Because what she sort of figured out is that it's very hard for a parent to do this on their own. You know, I can say, sure, I can tell my kids, sure, go out and play, you know, on the sidewalk. But if there's no other kids out there, they don't want to play out there. They're going to mm-hmm. come back inside, right? right? It's right. not it's not interesting. Also, if they're, if they're the only kid on the street, then it does become more dangerous because there's safety in numbers, right? Um, so, like, a, another person, Jonathan Haidt, the author who has also worked with Lenore on these projects, he suggested recently um, something like Free Range Fridays, where groups of parents or neighbors get together and they sort of make a conscious decision. Fridays, we're not going to schedule after-school activities for our kids. We're going to let them come and play on their own, you know, with a, with a parent in shouting distance if something if there's an emergency, but basically unstructured time. Um, so I think, you know, that, that that's really the best hope is sort of parents who are concerned about these trends and the impact they have on parents' lives and also on kids' lives kind of getting together and as groups saying we want to do things to sort of resist this culture of yeah. fear. Yeah. Lots to think about here. Kim Brooks is the author of Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. It was very very thought-provoking, and I hope people will spend some time thinking about this stuff. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks very much to Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They've been proudly serving the Armed Forces Department of Defense veterans and their families for over 80 years. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.